So the, the title of the talk, the first part, is Getting Down. <laughs> and it's not getting down in the sense of getting depressed, but rather uh, the full title is Getting Down to Direct Experience. That's what I want to explore today, uh, both the importance of that and uh, a number of practices which help us to do that. That's my theme today. And I'm imagining that this is a theme that I may continue uh, next time. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot that could be unpacked. And again, you should have a handout which I'll bring, bring in uh, maybe about um, halfway through, which, which is related to the theme. So it's, a, it's an ancient intention in Buddhist tradition and many traditions, many spiritual traditions. It's really the essence of the Western scientific traditions is to see things as they are, to be with phenomena and see them accurately, to notice the nature of experience, to uh, notice the nature of phenomena and to see it clearly. And the claim is also made that in many ways we're confused. We don't see things accurately. And that's what I want to explore. And one of the main ways that we don't see so clearly is that in our experience we get far removed from more direct experience. We go into the realm of um, stories, concepts, ideologies, interpretations, all of which can be helpful potentially, but often we in a way get lost in what we might call a virtual reality that's not connected with our direct experience of the body, of emotions, of really noticing thoughts. And a main way that this occurs is when there is what we call reactivity. And in a way, uh, by reactivity, I'm referring to a kind of compulsive or almost automatic reaction that could be, that typically comes because we want something and grasp onto it or we really don't want something and we react negatively with aversion. And typically when we do that, we tell stories about it and we get lost in the stories. And we often don't experience the original unpleasant or pleasant experience. I mean, it's very, very interesting. It's something we explore in meditation, you know, It's like um, we might have these wonderful ideas of going out to a restaurant and having wonderful food. And then when we go, how much do we really taste it? We could be totally enmeshed in conversation, right? Tasted, I mean, it could be a generally pleasant experience, but often we don't taste the food. One of the things that we experience on retreats, potentially, is is actually... uh, having that, the storyline get more quiet so we actually experience the senses more. It's really coming to our senses as the, as the line goes. So 
to look into how we uh, move away from direct experience is in part to unpack the nature of how we get confused. Because we often, when we are reactive, tell ourselves stories, tell others stories, we have a difficult experience with someone, we get into blaming, judging, we blame ourselves, we judge, and we more or less hang out for long periods of time in the blaming, in the judging, in the stories of this person's to blame, that person's to blame, this country is to blame, that country is to blame, and so forth. And we can just stay there and we get in a loop. We get in a loop of, re- of reactive thoughts. That's repetitious and, can, and, and unfortunately we can spend a good part of our lives in that reaction. In Buddhist tradition, there's a word to describe that which is samsara. S-A-M-S-A-R-A, and it has the connotation of a circular movement, (coughs) a little bit like a vicious circle, or a tape loop, or a uh, kind of a way that we are in a circular repetitive pattern. I heard one person say that the nature of confusion, and a good part of what we uh, do with our lives, is a continual... um, uh, Obsessive, compulsive, delusion, <laughs> OCD. <laughs> you know that that there's a way, and, and again, this, um, there's some humor here, but it's also there's some compassion, right? Because this is where so many people spend a lot of their lives just in the same tape loops, and that's one. Very, and when we look at our own experience, we can have a very precise sense of how each of us does that, and that's really how we unpack what we can call confusion, and how we don't see things accurately. The aim of practice is to move away from being caught in reactivity. And we might say it's to move from reaction to responsiveness. We get caught in grasping and attachment to things, and we get caught in aversion and negative and reaction to what's unpleasant. And we, those can be automatic. And so the opposite of those reactive patterns um, sometimes is said to be detachment, which is really like a, not a very good translation. We might think that the opposite of attachment is detachment. And we might get a sense that the aim of practice is just to be removed from things, which I think is quite inaccurate but rather the aim of practice is to have wise engagement and responsiveness with everything. So it's responsiveness as opposed to reaction. Mindfulness becomes a key tool because with mindfulness we can see in a more direct way what our experience is. And so we may know from the core teaching about mindfulness that in the classical teachings we're advised to give attention to four main areas of experience which help us to be more directly with experience. So we're instructed initially to be with the body. The four areas that we're invited to be with are the body, the feeling tone, which is the sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, 
That's, it's called the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is uh, the area of thoughts and emotions, we could say. Not an exact translation from the Asian languages, but close enough. And then the fourth area that we're invited to look at are what we might call patterns of experience. And I like to think of those as both personal patterns, patterns of my own mind and body and my own conditioning, and then more universal patterns. What, the, what mindfulness permits us when we can attend in that way is that we start to be able to see, at the, we, be a, we become able <laughs> to notice bodily experience. And we can notice in all of these areas how we often, because of a bodily experience, start having a lot of thoughts. You know, we can sit here and feel, let's say, feel my shoulder hurts. And I'm not, I don't really attend to the shoulder, but I think, oh, it's hurting again. Hmm. I hope I don't have to have anything serious to do with it. Hmm. Maybe I should do more swimming. Yeah, swimming would be really good, but, oh, you know, I have to drive so far to go swimming. That's not good. So maybe... That must be my diet. <laughs> so, 10 or 20 minutes later, ah, the breath, ah, the sensation. So we, in meditation, this is how it works, right? We, we get to notice how we're instructed just to be with the direct experience or the more direct experience, and we notice when we go off, and we notice the patterns. We notice, okay, just be with an emotion. And... And we might notice, oh, this happened that I'm really sad about. I'm just a sad, melancholy person. I'm going to be sad the rest of my life. (laughs) Meditation doesn't help at all. (laughs) Clearly, I need really, I don't know what I need. Maybe, maybe it's diet. (laughs) Okay. You get get the idea. And I'm being, does anyone relate to, anyone ever had anything remotely like what I was just describing? So, um, and we watch that. And the reason that we're asked to attend to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is because that's so often a trigger point for things developing further, right? That we have something unpleasant and the mind just gets really active, right? An unpleasant bodily experience, an unpleasant emotion, an unpleasant encounter with someone else, and we just go into um, a lot of thinking. There's an interesting passage from one of the texts of the Buddha that goes like this. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. (laughs) With associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. Little, little dire analysis there, but what one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. So that's obviously kind of the worst case scenario. Thinking can be helpful. We need to think. We need to have interpretations. We need certain kinds of stories. But what happens with mindfulness practice is that we become able to really notice, when am I with more direct experience? 
And when am I thinking a lot? And when am I telling a lot of stories? And when am I just going into that virtual reality? Again, it's not that that's negative, get rid of all of it, uh, but it actually is helpful to get rid of a lot of it. I would say from my experience, um, when I was first meditating, uh, I was um, really conditioned to think a lot. And I think I thought a lot, all the time. I tell the story sometimes of being a student. I actually was living in Germany for a year. And walking, I had to walk like an hour to go to where I was uh, studying. And I noticed one morning that I was just thinking all the time. And there was not much experience of my body, not too much experience of the environment. And I said, I'm just like consciousness on a pole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was a revealing moment. And, I, and a lot of my own training in meditation was, was literally to come to my senses more, to be more with the body, to be more with the senses, to be able to be more with emotions. And that's what we learn to do. That's a lot of the training for a lot of us, is to be able to do that and to be able to say, okay, here's something unpleasant happened, and I, hear my, I can feel almost my mind going in this direction or that direction. We study that. That's what we do in meditation. That's why... We need this protected environment to really be able to notice what's happening. To be able to notice, I had something difficult happen yesterday, I think about it and my mind goes off for 20 minutes, right? To notice that. And the invitation is, see if we can stay more close to direct experience. Can I stay with that unpleasant experience for a while? Can I notice the tendency to go from the unpleasant experience into thinking or some other kind of reaction. Or it could be there's the tensing of the body if it's something unpleasant physically. And the invitation is just to stay with more direct experience. This is from a well-known meditation teacher named Sylvia Borstein. Mindfulness is the aware, balanced acceptance of present experience. It isn't more complicated than that. It is opening to or receiving the present moment, pleasant or unpleasant, just as it is, without either clinging to it or rejecting it. Simple in that way. That's what we train here to do. Not easy, right? Because the conditioned reaction is to go from the pleasant or the unpleasant to avoid it, And a lot of times we avoid it by thinking, by telling stories, by saying, this happened, therefore I'm bad. And a lot of it, I'll I'll come to this in a little while, a lot of this is very deep conditioning, almost on an unconscious level, that leads us to react, to go to an old story. The old story could be, I'm not a worthy person, or I'm basically messed up. Or it could be, I'm better than everyone. If something's happening, they're clearly the problem. So you, know, so you can go in different directions. Right? Anyone, anyone recognize either of those? So, um, and so some of that, I'll come to this in a while, some of that is actually harder to get at because it's, it's working with very deep, old, unconscious patterns. But we still use the same kind of practice. So there's an interesting uh, model 
that I think can be helpful for looking at this more clearly. And it's called the ladder of inference. And this is the handout. And I think it can be very, very helpful for our practice to know this model. It's really saying in somewhat different language something quite similar to what I've said so far. And this actually comes out of uh, the area of organizational development. Comes out of the work of uh, Chris Argeris, Argeris, who was at MIT, I think may still be there, one of the great thinkers in organizational uh, development. And a very, very simple model. It says that in any given situation, there is observable data, or we could say observable data and experience. And in a way, there's a wide range of experiences. Out of that actually immense, even almost infinite, range of experiences, we select certain data for our attention. That's the second, as it were, the second rung on the ladder. And, you know, we do this when we meditate. When we meditate, we don't just attend to experience, typically, at least initially, in some simple way, because what would we attend to? If I'm sitting here right now, I could attend to an almost infinite variety of sights, sounds, images, thoughts? Do I attend to this table or do I look outside or do I listen or do I do this or that? So in actually in meditation, initially we choose where to focus. We focus on the breath. So that corresponds really to we select certain data. We select certain experiences. And typically we're doing that all the time. It's also interesting to, when we study our minds, it's also interesting to see what do I select? And why do I select this rather than that? And that's interesting. Now, as we uh, go further, we give meaning to the, the data, right? So we don't, some data by itself doesn't necessarily have any meaning. You know, if the person sitting across from me is frowning at me and has been frowning at me for two years, how do I interpret that? What's, I, you know, we're meaning-making creatures, and my mind tends to want to make some sense of that. And again, I could do it in different ways. I could say, that person is an irritable person. <laughs> or I could say, it must be something I did. Oh, yeah, I'm an irri- irritation-causing person. <laughs> you know, you can go in different directions like that. And, but we go meanings, then we, you know, we also can make assumptions. You know, I, make my, I might make assumption about that person. Clearly, that person had a very difficult childhood and is probably unhappy. Clearly so. You know, where I could make assumptions about myself, we draw conclusions, we adopt beliefs, and then, we, you know, then our actions often follow from that belief. So you get the, the sense of the model. There's a way that we go up the ladder. It gets more abstract, more removed from direct experience, And we need to do that at times. There is a wise use of selecting data, adding meaning, making assumptions, drawing conclusions, and so forth. There's a wise way to do that. What I'm pointing to here is that often a lot of the way we go up the ladder is automatic and reactive. And that's what we want to look at. So a few few stories. One story is from Sylvia. 
It's about this. And this is uh, a time when she wanted to stay at the Zen Center for a short retreat, uh, the Zen Center in San Francisco. And look at the model of the ladder of inference. And uh, uh, she tells this story publicly, so I'm not you know, betraying confidentiality here. Uh, but you know, it's, so here's the story. She uh, wanted, to, um, wanted to go on retreat, and she called up the retreat center, and she was told, um, um, Steve, the person who handles, uh, who handles reservations, isn't here. Could you call back later? So she calls back a little later, and um, again, the response she gets is, I'm sorry, Steve isn't here. Um, could you call back later? She calls back later a third time, and she gets you know, the message, I'm sorry, Steve isn't here. And she says, I guess I'm just not meant to go to the Zen Center. And the response immediately back from the other person, no, it just means that Steve isn't here. <laughs> so, so you see the going up the ladder? You know how we do that often, right? We, t- we tell stories. And again, that's an innocent enough story. A lot of the stories we tell are actually connected with our suffering. And they get, they get harder. So another story... Um, well, I'll tell a story from my own background. Um, um, I remember when I was um, probably high school or junior high, um, I, um, I think we had certain kind of, I don't know if there are rules, but that if someone was studying, other people wouldn't make a lot of noise. You know, and in particular, if, if I was studying, my brother wouldn't play records. Something like that. Okay. And I remember sometimes um, studying, and I just would hear just a little bit that I had to really strain to hear. And I would say, is that a record? I'm not sure. I, I actually couldn't hear what it was. It clearly wasn't bothering me. What I was most concerned about was that it might possibly be something that was going on that actually wasn't bothering me, but I was bothered by the fact that something might be happening. And so I would actually go outside my closed door to listen to whether something was happening. You know, and I would, you know, so I was wanting to... <laughs> so this was... Anyway, you get the idea. It's also kind of going up the ladder. Or another story... Um, um, uh, this is a, a story I heard from uh, Carol Wilson, who's a, a meditation teacher based on the East Coast. And she tells the story of a woman who was um, uh, on a retreat, and I think she was, uh, I don't know if she was practicing in her room, but she was hearing uh, creaks, a lot of sounds coming that were really bothering her. And she was thinking, oh my gosh, it must be the people downstairs. They're just making noise. They're really not considerate. And the, the creaks kept on happening. The sounds kept happening. She was really positive it was from downstairs. A lot of storytelling, a lot of assumptions. And, you know, here I'm going to go to the managers or no, I should do this. And eventually, at one point, quite a while after all these stories, she noticed that the creaks happened because she was leaning on the wall and when she breathed, the creaks started occurring. <laughs> so, 
you get the sense, you get the sense of how we often, something unpleasant happens, we often go up the ladder. And we can really uh, find ourselves locked in stories, right? Locked in, in uh, thoughts. You know, I find that when I work with people one-on-one, the most central and common guidance I give is be careful of the stories you are telling yourself. Be careful of the stories you are telling yourself. Know what they are. And again, it can be, uh, again, I'm most more so far bringing out the humorous aspect of it, but they're clearly can be great suffering connected with the stories we tell ourselves. Because a lot of the stories can be, I'm a bad person, something's wrong with me, I'm flawed, or this person is really bad, or you know, things are messed up in my life, or I didn't do this right, I have regrets. <coughs> and we can really notice that. The key mark, you know, what really to notice when we're practicing, to know that we might be caught in kind of this loop or this story is the repetition. We want to track for repetition. When there's repetition of a story, it's a good sign that there's something reactive going on. That's that's really how to tell. Also, sometimes when it feels like it's in the body sometimes, when when our body might be tensing, when we think of this person and the body tenses when we go into this story. And we can obviously do that in, in our relationships. A lot of our relationships go way up the ladder. Actually, I think that falling in love is by definition going up the ladder. <laughs> you know, that we get caught in wondrous projections about the other person. You know, and people who analyze relationship dynamics say that there's always after six months, or I guess it could be ten years, there's a kind of, gosh, my initial projection about this person was mainly about me, and here's actually what this person is. It's called the disillusionment phase. And it's when we, and, and yet, it's almost, I don't know, there's almost something beautiful about it. Like we need that semi-fictitious story to give the energy to fall in love. I don't know. It's mysterious, right? <laughs> and, and yet, uh, it is something that it's kind of like way up the ladder, right? And we, we, we can see that. Um, and it's also something that we do uh, collectively. We go way up the ladder. A lot, you know, I worked in the U.S. Congress when I was 18, 19 years old as a congressional intern. Um, kind of like Monica Lewinsky was, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have such experiences. <laughs> Never met the president <laughs> and so forth. But I was... Uh, but, what was really striking for me in those experiences was that uh, almost no one wanted to really deal with the real issues and problems of the country. That everyone was way up the ladder. A lot of it was because they were driven by the need for re-election. But the actual ability to be in an accurate way with what the problems of the country were I didn't find that very much. It was really, as an 18, 19 year old, that was really shocking. It's gotten worse, perhaps. You know? And we can see that. And I thought I would read something which I found, which is about how this manifests in the workings at the highest level of government. And this is to do with foreign policy. Um, and I'm, this is about the um, invasion of Iraq and so forth. And I just want to say, I think I'm not 
don't want to be partisan here, I think I could make the same analysis of the Democrats. <laughs> okay? But this is something that I found, which, is, which in a way, I mean, a lot of this, when you actually look at it, when you notice how we go up the ladder when there's reactivity, it can actually be a little scary. Because <coughs> we notice that when you have the eyes to notice this, you notice that this is happening all the time with so many people. You know? And it's happening in the government, it's happening in the world. And what it can be, when you notice it more and more, I just want to warn you a little bit, it can be a little bit hard to take. It's a lot to see. You know? So here's something that for me is powerful um, about how this manifests at the highest levels of government, this removal from direct experience and the going up into stories, fictions, ideologies, and so forth. This is from... Uh, Mark Danner's work. Mark Danner is a professor of journalism at UC Berkeley. This is his analysis. The story of the Iraq war disaster springs less from his brow, from the president's brow, um, than from that of an inexperienced and rigidly self-assured president who managed to fashion, with the help of a powerful vice president, a strikingly disfigured process of governing. Bush and Cheney constructed precisely the government they wanted, centralized, highly secretive, the clean, direct lines of decision unencumbered by information. (laughs) Information, that is, could slow decision-making. Indeed, when it had to do so with a bold and risky venture like the Iraq War, information and discussion an erring say of the precise obstacles facing a so-called democratic transition conducted with a handful of troops could paralyze it if the sober consideration of history and facts stood in the way of bold action then it would be the history and facts that would be discarded the systematic failures in Iraq resulted in large part from an almost willful determination to cut off those in the government who knew anything from those who made the decisions and that, that's, not, that's an analysis made with a lot of study. You know, so, and again, it's not so different from what I, as a 19-year-old, subjectively felt or thought about the government, that the, there was some things just went way up the ladder of inference. Now, what's uh, interesting for us is that what I, what I just read to you, which is scary when you look at it at the level of the government, isn't that different from what we do all the time. They are not fundamentally different from us. Sorry. Um, And, so I'll I'll end with um, some time on the fact that our practice is to go down the ladder. It's to, in the the words of my talk, it's to get down. (laughs) Really get down closer to direct experience. And that in doing so, we transform reactivity. And we are able to be responsive rather than reactive. That's our practice. And we do this, and we can do this individually. We can do this in our relationships. And ultimately, we can do so in our larger communities and hopefully bring about a saner world. You know, and there are a lot of people doing that. You know, and it may not be the work to make that happen at the larger level may be precisely to work on it at lower levels. Okay, so what to do? And there's actually, there's what to do here?
So our mindfulness practice is key. What, the first thing I want to say is we want to notice thoughts clearly when they're occurring. We want to be able to track with our mindfulness when we're having thoughts, and we want to be able to know when, we're in, when there is repetitive thought. Again, the repetitive thought is the best indication that we're in a tape loop or that there's something reactive and repetitive going on. And so there are things that we can do with repetitive thoughts, and I'll mention some in a moment, but the tracking of our thoughts is something that we can do through our mindfulness practice. You know, that we begin by simply starting to notice, okay, there's judgment, there's anger, there's melodrama number three. Oh, melodrama number one making appearance. It's a race between melodrama number one and melodrama number three as who will have the most, most uh, moments. <laughs> okay? and, and then we can, but we, we can notice. We can notice um, a thought about myself. I can notice a thought about this person. And we just track it. That's, the, that's what we first do in mindfulness. And we don't, you know, with that we're not necessarily trying to make all the thoughts go away. We're just trying to track it. We're just trying to notice it. Um, we can also um, be aware when there's repetitive thought. And there, again, there's, in a moment I'll say some things we can do with that. We can also be aware of our emotions. You know, so a lot of times the emotions are there and then those lead to thoughts or those lead to stories. So it's very good to track emotions. Again, to, be, to notice when there's anger, sadness, grief, happiness, joy, and to really know that and, and to stay, if we can, to stay with the emotions. Notice where the emotions go. A lot of what we're learning is the tracking of sequences of experience. The whole premise of our practice is that when we notice enough, the unhelpful or, or unskillful patterns will fall away. What does enough mean? <laughs> yeah, the deepest ones take time. Some of the more superficial patterns fall away quickly. And we can see that. We can notice that. So the whole, again, the working reason of why we do this is that attention brings wisdom, brings release of old patterns, and brings transformation attention, and for some of the more difficult ones we need support, we need insight, we may need to have special attention, and so forth. But that the practice of bringing attention in a systematic way, in a community, with support, with teachings, really works. We have a few thousand years of history, quite a few million people have done this. Right? So it's not like this is an untested weekend workshop being offered for the first time in the Bay Area for great profit. <laughs> you know, it's really, these are really, really time-tested. You know? And we're, what's a little bit new is that we're doing it with Western minds, which are a little different and need some special adjustments. So we, we attend to emotions. A very key aspect also was the second foundation of mindfulness to attend to any experiences of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, particularly significant, you know, strong experiences of pleasant or unpleasant. For what we're talking about, that's really key. And 
you know, in terms of our practice, I'm mentioning a few things. I think in terms of actually doing this, it's probably helpful just to do one at a time. You know, like take for a week, I'm going to really track emotions, or I'm going to track thoughts, or I'm going to track pleasant and unpleasant. I think to try to do all these at once, unless you've done it a lot, maybe too much. So just take a, like a bite size. Take one practice and focus on that for a week, kind of until it becomes more familiar, or for a month. Related to that sense of tracking the pleasant and unpleasant, and a lot of it is to watch where it goes, okay? I just had an unpleasant encounter with my partner, and I notice thoughts going, can I actually feel the emotion? Can I feel the unpleasant quality? And watch the tendency for thoughts to go, to start developing, to really track that. What we want to especially notice is how, from something unpleasant, there is that proliferation, which I talked about earlier. There's a tendency for thoughts to proliferate because something's unpleasant, also when something's pleasant, because the, the thoughts can proliferate, I want to keep this happening, I want this to, I want to make this sure I keep getting this, something like that. Related to that noticing a pleasant and unpleasant, it's a beautiful practice to say, let me have my radar up to notice any moment of reactivity. That's a powerful practice. That's not an easy practice. It's kind of an intermediate or advanced practice. But if you could say at the beginning of the day, if I become really stuck or reactive, I want to notice it. And I take that as a starting point for practice. When one does that, uh, practice can really accelerate. When you look for any moment of reactivity, not as a curse, but as a starting point for learning. Interesting, right? things change. You have to get used to that. You can't, that's kind of hard to do at the beginning of practice. But as one does it more, one becomes, interest, one becomes interested in how you lose it and, and how one loses it. My high school English teacher is making appearance behind my, my head. <laughs> so one becomes interested in how one gets lost, how one gets reactive, how one goes off somewhere. And, and you take that and say, let, me that, let that be the beginning of experience. Staying in the body, staying in the emotions, staying there can be, can be very, very helpful. And maybe I'll just say one more thing and then we can, then we can finish. Is that the understanding of reactivity is, is simple in a way. It's that when we're reactive, and reactive means I'm somewhat automatically pushing something away or grabbing hold of something, when that occurs, I tend to go off up the ladder. I tend to go into stories, interpretations, judging and blaming. And that can be connected with suffering, my own and that of others. And that what the practice is, is to study the reactivity enough so that we see the tendencies and at a certain moment there's enough mindfulness so we say, do I really want to go there again? (laughs) And if there's enough energy and power, we might say no. We say, I want to be mindful, I want to stay with it. So there's a lot of value here or a lot of focus here on being able to be with reactivity, to notice it, to be with it, to be with difficult emotions at times. 
and to be able to work with that. I'll just end with one further comment and then a reading. The further comment is that I've been focusing so far on how to work with moments of reactivity and how to understand them. Focusing on basically ways that we get stuck, lost, reactive, and so forth. If we're doing this a lot, it's really good to have a balance of resting in the heart of compassion. And so to have practices like loving kindness or compassion, and when it feels like it's too much, I'm just looking at my reactivity all the time, if I'm just going a little, it feels like too much, then do things which bring about joy and the good heart. And and maybe next time I'll give more attention to that because I think this is equally important as the last 40 minutes of my talk, but I'm just giving a minute or two to it. But that resting in the heart and being able to really hang out with joy and beauty and the good heart is what gives us the energy sometimes to be able to go through the harder stuff. And that's really important also. Really, really crucial. And so here's, I'll end with one of my favorite passages. It's from Rilke, uh, the poet Rilke, who was responding to a person whom he called the young poet. This is from Letters to a Young Poet. The young poet was 20 or 21. Rilke was a seasoned 28 (laughs) when he was responding to the young poet. Rilke at 28 presumably was the old poet. So here's what the the young poet was very anguished about certain things. A lot of things in his life weren't worked out. It's related to the question uh, before the talk began. A lot of things weren't worked out, wanted to have everything together right now. And this is what Rilke said to him. And I'll end with this. And it's really a kind of a, um, it's really, it's an encouragement in many ways, but partly encouragement just to not get too lost in the story and the figuring out and stay with more direct experience. Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you, to you because you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So I'll stop now just for quiet moment for a minute and then we can talk together. have some time to talk together about anything that was brought up or any questions. Uh, please. Um, I am having trouble differentiating between meanings and assumptions. Yeah. Because I think my meanings usually are 
assumptions. Yeah, they might, they might be. Um, less important with this model to have some firm conceptual distinction, probably in the model, which, which I didn't read before today, there probably is a way of making those, uh, distinguishing those. My guess is that the meaning is much more uh, general. You know, it's like we, we, um, we, look out, we look outside, we see the blue sky, and we think it's not going to rain today. Maybe that's an assumption. But the, the meaning would be, uh, oh, nice out there. <laughs> you know, and the, maybe the assumption would be it won't rain today. So it's on maybe another level. The meaning would be maybe a little just, just uh, to make sense of a situation. And the assumption may go a little bit further, maybe a little more action-oriented. Something like that. It's, it's less critical to, to, to what I was really pointing to, which is more to, you know, really the invitation is like in the next week, or I guess two weeks until I come back again. Use this model to help you look at your personal experience. It's a pretty amazing model to make sense of interpersonal experience and collective experience. Again, like I say, when you really use it, it can be a little scary because you can see how, when, especially when people have conflict, they go right up the, the ladder. We use this model. When I teach workshops for trainings on conflict and working with conflict, we use this as a key teaching tool because what happens is when people are in conflict, they go way up the ladder and the work of a, a peacemaker is to go down the ladder to the hurt feelings, to the more direct experience. That's how this becomes very practical. So in the peacemaking that one would do in a family or a community uh, or in the world is actually very parallel to what we do individually in our meditation practice. It's to come back down to more direct experience. Because I didn't go into this so much, a lot of times we go up the ladder almost as defense mechanisms so we don't have to experience something unpleasant. We have thoughts occurring, we make assumptions because something is happening we don't want to be in touch with and we use the thoughts as defense mechanisms. Maybe I'll go into more into that last time. Last time. That's <laughs> How is that going to happen? Okay, so no time travel. <laughs> okay, next time. Okay. Uh, please. So does that help some? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. In, in the back, please. You had said something earlier that you're teaching a, a, a session on judgments. Yeah. I was listening to you present, and you used some word that related to drama when you're looking at a situation in your mind. Yeah. And so if, say, an obviously challenging situation comes, someone hangs up the phone on you. Yeah. That's a, a pretty dramatic act. Yeah. If you're observing it, are you looking at it as drama, or is it like that's the data that was the experience. You know what I'm saying? If you're yeah. Through, that's yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, so I'm talking with someone, and what the person hangs up abruptly. Yeah, they let's have say. An unpleasant experience and they hang up. The person hangs up. And so, <coughs> so how would we work with that given the talk and this model? Okay. Right. It's one way of. Um, um, what would you say? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, because I, I bet you you actually could give a pretty good response. I I I I, I grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then I think I I go into some confusion. Yeah. Yeah. There. Um, 
Right. So, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the baton from you. As, that's a starting point. Right. Breathing, really helpful first step. And, um, yeah, in a way it's pointing to maybe when something difficult has happened, just take a little bit of time out and try to, you know, it's good to try to, you know, in that situation, try to get a sense of what's happening with me. You know, um, because we, we could imagine someone hanging up and I might be really emotionally flooded, angry, upset, a little bit in shock. Some scenarios that could happen. If this has happened um, a lot, if this has happened 30 times and uh, I'm not emotionally charged, I could just say, hmm, we'll talk later. What should I do next? Right? Could be. A, there's nothing in the act that dictates how, what I'm experiencing. That's something quite interesting to know. It's an important point that um, our emotions are not caused by other people. They're triggered by other people, but they're not caused by it. The causes involve a lot of inner conditions and outer conditions. Okay, that's a, getting off. So if, if I had an emotional response to the act, yeah. The act in itself doesn't, it can trigger it. So I'm distinguishing between cause and trigger. And cause means that with, with, um, that there's only one thing happening somehow, something from outside caused this emotion in me. But in actuality, there are a lot of inner causes as well, inner factors. But the, the main point would be, as a form of practice, let me be aware of what I'm feeling. Let me sit with what I'm feeling it might be anger, it might be flooding, I might have thoughts developing, this is the third time this happened, you know, I'm going to break off relations with this person, you know, I could go up the ladder, I could make assumptions about this person, I could get into a story, I could, you know, I could blame myself. And so, if we were practicing, we would try to go as low on the ladder as we could, which means to be with the emotions, be with the body, hang out, probably very good. If, it's, if I'm being reactive, it's generally not a good time for me to actually try to respond. It's better to respond when I'm not reactive as much as possible. So I might stay with that. I might work with just being present and work with my own consciousness, you know. And then, then how I respond to the other person, if at all, depends on a lot of different factors. You know, what kind of relationship do I have with the other person? If, is there a relationship where we can talk about our emotions with the other, each other? Some people, yes. Some people, no. Right? If it's yes, um, again, uh, this, this is going into the area of interpersonal communication. Um, it w- it's very helpful. And this is, you know, I, I teach a lot of retreats on speech practice, and we explore that here sometimes. A key in that kind of situation would be, can I know myself? what I'm experiencing, can I go down the ladder with myself, and then can I go down the ladder with the other person? Can I be empathic with the other person and imagine what the other person is experiencing? Typically, when we're triggered interpersonally, we don't do that. We go up the ladder, we have stories, we don't try to sense what's the other person experiencing empathically. You know. um, and then Again, it totally depends on the other person and the relationship and the context. But in some situations, it might be possible to actually communicate about what I experienced on a more direct level. 
rather than going to like, this is the 14th time you've done that, or there's something wrong with you. That's usually not a good starting line <laughs> if we're interested in uh, reconciliation or working it out, you know. So we use language, which brings us down further on the ladder. It can be very, very helpful. It takes a lot of practice, you know. Here I'm recommending that we start just noticing our experience, but that might be how we use this practice. Can I go down the ladder with the other? Can I go down the ladder with myself? Can I be with my emotions, with my body? feel what it's like, and then if I communicate, can I do that? Now that's not easy, and again, I want to suggest a lot of caution. We have to know the nature of the relationship with the other. Some people, if you made yourself vulnerable by saying what your emotion was, the other person would blast you, right? So you have to really know what the situation is. And some people would reciprocate and say, oh, I felt really bad myself. You know, I'm really sorry that this ended up like this, and it can be beautiful, and result in mutual compassion and forgiveness and deeper connection, right? And so, so we have to really know the, the context. It's really crucial. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. We had one more, and then I think we'll, we'll be at time. Yeah, please. Do we know, or, or does, the, does the emotion trigger the thought, or does the thought trigger the emotion, or mm-hmm. is it both, or does it matter? So the question of... Does the thought trigger the emotion? Does the emotion trigger the thought? Do they mutually trigger each other? Are they one big happy family? Um, What's going on? Um, I think it varies. A lot of our emotions, you know, one of the myths that we have is that emotions are not connected with thought. You know, that emotions are different from thought. And they may be, um, they're clearly different in some ways, but most emotions have a fairly developed cognitive structure. In other words, if I get angry, there may be a lot of reasons that are right there in my anger that are cognitive. It might be, um, I'm angry because this, that was unjust, right? And so the thought goes right along with the anger. You know, you know the thought that was unjust uh, is necessary for the anger to be there. And it's part of the complex of the anger, right? So there's some, sometimes a thought will trigger an emotion. You know, if I think, oh, that was really unfair, and then I might get angry. I might not have been angry before. Sometimes I get angry and I don't know why I'm angry, and on, the thought comes later. <laughs> right? So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, but I think they're rather mixed up with each other. You know, that emotions trigger thoughts, thoughts trigger emotions. Sometimes they come in one package together. So when yeah. we're meditating, are yeah. we trying to look at the, the, the thought, and then the yeah. feeling came. Are we supposed to be looking at what is sort of the, 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 the cause of, of our yeah. unease or whatever? Generally, at this point, not to be too analytical, but mostly just to observe what's occurring. So we sit there and we notice a thought uh, that was unfair. We can just label it thought. Then we feel some heat in the body. Okay, there's anger. We feel you know, angry thoughts developing, then we just hang out with the anger and notice it. So it's less trying to be analytical and more just a simple mindfulness. And over time, we may, we start to see that there are particular patterns. You know, when, you know, our, I I didn't go into this so much, but that when we look carefully at our reactivity, either grabbing hold or pushing away, if we do that a lot, we're going to notice that there's certain key patterns. 
that occur. Each of us probably has several major patterns. You know, like when I have studied myself at times, I, one of my patterns I've talked about here that I think I grew up with is that when I don't feel seen or listened to, I become judgmental and withdraw emotionally. And that may, that's a very common pattern for many of us. So I, 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 that could be a thought or it could be almost like immediate emotion and don't feel seen or heard or listened to. And I kind of have an immediate reaction, it's almost on a bodily level, and then I kind of emotionally withdraw to a standpoint of distanced moral superiority. Very convenient. <laughs> right? And so for me, it took a while to notice that pattern. Took a lot of mindfulness, and now I'm saying it as if I, you know, the words roll off my lips. Well, <laughs> distance, moral superiority, emotionally withdrawn. You know, so uh, but it took a while to really see. It took like two years <laughs> to see that. So as we do more and more of the mindfulness, we start seeing those patterns, and we might see, oh, here are some, and we want to look the places where we feel triggered or where there are repetitive thoughts. Typically, we'll find some pattern. We keep looking, but we, you know, uh, generally it comes from just being mindful rather than figuring it out. Just being mindful. And when we just pay attention enough, at a certain point, the insight comes, there's a pattern. It's more like that than saying, is it pattern this? Is it pattern that? Let me look at it. Let me analyze it. It's not really that, especially if we're analytically minded, not so helpful. Okay. So... My suggestion for next time is to, or next time I come, I think I'm going to continue with this. Is this at all interesting? No, I'm just joking. Uh, (laughs) It's really at the heart of our practice, right? Right. And it's very everyday, it's very accessible, it's doable, and yet it's the heart of of how we transform, of how transformation occurs. So there's a lot of material I had I didn't bring in. So my suggestion for next uh, two weeks is... Pay special attention to when your mind is reactive. Notice yourself going up the ladder. Notice other people going up the ladder. And try to be mindful of when that's happening. And if there was something else I said as a practice that really struck you that you want to follow, do that. Don't do too many things. Just do one or two practices, one or two things you notice. Just notice going up the ladder for yourself, for others, and try to stay with more direct experience. That's enough. And then we'll, um, we'll compare notes in two weeks, and we'll keep the process going. So let's just sit for 30 seconds to finish. So bring to mind what was helpful and maybe your intention. Let's let your intention for the next two weeks be there. Knowing that this practice is transformative and healing for ourselves and that our practice has an impact on the world. And may the fruits of our practice be beneficial for us and may they be beneficial for others, all others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.